Tom Maluli is an investment advisor representative with Maluli Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Tom and his podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Maluli Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Maluli Asset Management may maintain positions in securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number 345. I'm Tom Maluli, and joining me today is Brendan Maluli and Tim Maluli. I think we've declared that uh, winter is officially over, right? Winter is over uh, February 25th. Yeah. It's <laughs> Who over. needs a groundhog? Yeah. yeah we'll, we'll tell you when it's over. Yeah. I've just declared that uh, I've had enough of winter and it's time to move on. So, Amen. Yeah. It's, it's funny that a week ago today, we were getting a snowstorm. We had a snow, we had a snow day. We all worked remotely. And yeah. now it's, this is three days in a row where it's sunny and probably going to be 50 degrees. Yeah. So I'm nice. okay with that. So with spring comes tax filing season. And uh, how was that for a segue? Tax season is in full swing and so are tax scams, unfortunately. Yeah, there was an article in CNBC highlighting uh, this topic and... It's an important point for, for people to understand, especially this time of year, and especially this year in particular. Uh, there are a number of different changes and, and different programs and things that uh, came about due to the pandemic that make filing taxes different this year, um, and there's more opportunity to get money from the government, so people might be more inclined to try and rip you off. Good good point from the article was just that you're never going to get a phone call or an email or, or a text from the IRS. And so if you do, I mean, I know that I've got automated calls before that are telling me you know, it's the IRS. Like, don't... Yeah, you've got to pay now. Don't pay, don't pay attention to that stuff. If, if you have to communicate with them, uh, you are more likely than not going to receive an official letter in the mail. And then if you have somebody you, you work with on your taxes, you show it to them and you go from there. Uh, but they're not going to send you a text and say, you owe us money. So don't don't fall for things like that. Yeah, it's very rare for the IRS, even, even on the initial contact, to say you owe money unless there is something that's been omitted from your tax return that's very clear like you received a 1099 and you forgot to enter that information into your return then there would be a discrepancy and they want you to explain but they'll never you're going to get a letter about that though, right. right you won't get a get a bill initially yeah, you're going to get a snapchat from the IRS saying hey you owe us <laughs> money so yeah. just be on the lookout for official letters yeah. uh, but but you know sometimes these emails that you get uh, they they do look very official maybe they'll have the the letterhead of uh, a letter that you know with the seal of the IRS on there i mean i i get these things in my inbox all the time and yeah. just drag them to spam and uh, so you never know you can't be too careful yeah and i think that that's really the the crux of the problem is that most of these uh, irs or tax scams stem from identity theft mm -hmm. and the way that you know, these scammers get your personal information is often by loading some kind of virus or Trojan or something into your computer. How does it get there? Usually opening emails or clicking on something that you thought was real, but it wasn't. And then it, you know, gets gets into your 
personal information that you put into the computer. So I think it's important to be cognizant of where you're uploading some information or what you're sending in an email, even if you're sending it to someone that you trust it you know it could get hacked along the way or or something like that they said that over 89,000 people reported tax fraud linked to identity theft in just just last year alone uh, so it it does happen to a lot of people yeah and these scammers are are getting really clever like you mentioned Brendan they're they're using the real uh, logos and emblems so it actually does make you pause and look at it i'm getting tons of microsoft related spam emails like oh you have this message in your in your voicemail message in your inbox play it you know that you are triggering something evil if you were to click on that another thing that uh i've picked up on is that they will sometimes like if you have an m a lowercase m in your email address they'll use like an r and an n and if you don't pay attention, it looks like an M. And that's kind of how they trick people into clicking on these things. Oh, it was from somebody I know. So you got to be careful, especially considering that this year, if, if you haven't in the past, uh, you, you might be doing more of your tax uh, filing process uh, virtually yeah, uh, right. this year. So you know, if you're uploading things to some kind of a, a portal that your CPA or tax preparer is using, I mean, you, you got to do a lot more of this stuff on the computer than maybe you might have in years past. And so, yeah, more opportunity to end, end up with something that's that's not real or get hacked. So just be careful when you're doing this stuff. I mean, I, I, I think it's it's safe to do without like, you know, it's it's safe to work with somebody virtually. Just just be careful about where you're putting these these documents that you're giving them. I mean, you don't want your W-2 or 1099s falling into the wrong hands. Uh, so make sure that however your tax preparer is collecting this information, uh, you just found the steps. I know that Tim will link to this article in the show notes, but as I read this article, it made me think of another article that I read yesterday where the uh, head of the IRS was quoted as saying that more tax returns have been filed early this year than ever before. So I don't know if they're real or fake, yeah. I mean, they could really, people could really be, you know, these scammers could be on the ball. Yeah. People people are always hopeful uh, if they're anticipating some kind of uh, a refund to get their return filed as quick as possible. Could be a situation this year, especially though, where um, people who, who should have gotten the stimulus checks over the course of last year and then, it, you know, the, the first round and then the ones that went out in January as well, uh, should, should have gotten those and didn't because of a discrepancy in their income from 2018 or 19 and maybe they were laid off last year and so if they go to file now they're at least going to get that tax credit right uh, on their return so people are probably you know combination of a lot of things but hoping that maybe they're uh getting some money back or or finally getting relief that they they should have received during 2020 in the article they said the one surefire way to avoid this happening is to just file as early as possible. Don't think this won't happen to you because it, it, it happens to, I mean, we, we get calls frequently from clients about scenarios like this. So it can happen to pretty much anyone out there. We often get pulled into discussions about whether it's the right idea to take social security early 
or to let it compound. And this is such a wide open field, ripe for a lot of discussion. Jonathan Clements, who uh, has a, a great website called The Humble Dollar, uh, wrote about it. And Tim, you actually interviewed Jonathan uh, about a year or so back. Yeah. On, on living with money that was a fun interview he in his in this article he he addressed a couple of points or I guess you could call them myths about social security that some people believe that might not necessarily be true about why you should claim early and a few of them I think were that you know you'll enjoy the money more in your early 60s than you would if you waited later in life there were a couple others that that he pointed out as well so he uh, talked about, you know, if your health situation is not, you know, you're not in good health, you may want to think about filing early. Uh, maybe you're out of work uh, right now and you're 62, maybe something to consider. Uh, but there's also that discussion that we have all the time that, that people say, well, I don't think Social Security is going to be there for me when I'm ready to retire. I don't know. I mean, we hear so many discussions uh, and so many different points of view on this. It's just my own personal take that I, I think it would be suicidal for politicians to talk about cutting Social Security. Uh, and they have proven that when when they're in a jam, they can print money uh, if necessary, like they did last year with the pandemic. And so I think the discussion of Social Security not being there in the future becomes less and less of a a topic. Do you agree? Yeah, I don't I don't think that I don't think that trust or distrust of the government or social security as an entity should factor into your decision to claim it at all. Uh, and and I know that that's somewhat of a hot take, but I that's what I believe. Yeah. Uh, some interesting stats about the idea that maybe you would enjoy your money more uh, early on in retirement versus later on. Jonathan had numbers that showed that average households age 65 to 74 uh, spend about $55,000 a year while they're pulling in about $65,000 a year. So they're spending about 84% of that income. Right. Uh, and then those 75 plus spent on average about $44,000 a year while pulling in $42,000 a year. So they're spending 104% of what they're bringing in. And he posited that maybe folks do spend less as, as the numbers bear out uh, as they get older, but that may not necessarily be because of the fact that they would enjoy it more earlier. It may just be uh, dictated by their resources. They're spending less over time because they have to, not because they want to spend less. Sure. Uh, and so I, th I think that's that's interesting to consider. And certainly, I mean, there, there are going to be some among us who reach, you know, advanced ages and, and they, they just aren't getting around they're not as mobile as they used to be and and they're definitely not spending less but like we don't know who we don't know ahead of time who that's going to be and who that isn't going to be i mean i've met people in their 80s and even into their 90s that are sharp as attack i mean we listened to charlie munger yesterday uh who's as bright as they come and what is he now 95 94 97 Oh, sorry. 97. Yeah. Yeah. So, so like and so i know that 97 and he still has a potty mouth <laughs> yeah so, so, so <laughs> somewhat of an outlier but like you you don't know for sure how you personally are going to age you, you may have ideas based on health situations that you know you, you currently have and and all we can do is make best guesses but to just assume 
or to assign your 80-year-old self, let's say, yeah, 80-year-old Brendan's going to want to spend less. I don't know if 80-year-old Brendan would like you speaking on his behalf today. Mm, sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's also, it's hard to tell in the future what you're going to need right. in terms of, you know, what you want to spend versus what you need to spend. So very hard to, to say. And I think the part of the problem when we discuss this with folks is uh, they want to spend money, but what if they, you know, the trap is, what if they do live into their 90s? That's so social security. If, if you think about it that way, is, is your hedge against living a really long time. And so I think in some way, shape or form, what they talked about in the article was like maximizing for, you know, the, the most spending potential over, over the course of your retirement. Yeah. And it's a little sticky because we don't know how long exactly that will be because nobody knows what their true life expectancy is. But just having the most options available to you and the most income possible over the course of your retirement, which may mean you, you might be drawing from different sources or spending slightly less over the first couple of years to ensure that you're not living on an amount that's being forced upon you later on just because the, you know those are the terms. Both Tim and Brendan, you've worked on cases for clients where that's been a, like an eye-opening discovery for some people where it's like, well, I'm going to live on Social Security and I'm not going to take dollars out of my retirement account until I'm forced to at age 72. And it's really, it kind of changes the discussion. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of room in between to, to have a discussion about that because you're talking about uh, a married couple approaching the age where this, this enters the discussion. I mean, you'd be in a situation where you're going halfway on some of these things where maybe it makes sense for one of the spouses to claim social security and then you're going to fill up the rest with uh, distributions from retirement accounts or, or taxable savings, brokerage accounts, or, or maybe there's pensions that factor in. And so I just think, unfortunately, the the true answer when it comes to this is always that it depends because you have to take into account what your other options are. It shouldn't just be assumed that you're taking it as early as possible when it comes to uh, pension or to social security because those are those are important cogs in in you know the retirement income uh, uh, that you'll have over the course of your lifetime and those are irreversible decisions in in many cases so you want to make sure that when you're making them that it's something you're comfortable with for the long run. In the last episode, we talked about income annuities and one of the things that we mentioned it is that social security is probably the ideal kind of income annuity because you paid into it while you were working. It's essentially free uh, and it's indexed for inflation. So your income climbs as inflation climbs. So when we look at annuities, there was a little bit of industry news that came out. I just want to touch on this very briefly that the IRS has ruled on tax treatment for advisory fees for annuity contracts. So insurance company uh, Security Benefit received a private letter ruling from the IRS that payment of advisory fees from an annuity contract are not treated as a taxable distribution or a taxable event by the contract owner. So in the past, if your advisor was trying to bill on an annuity, if they were taking fees out of the annuity, that would actually count as a distribution for the client. I forget what firm it was, but they're very, very early on 
in the world of IRAs, it was deemed pretty quickly by the IRS that taking advisor fees out of retirement accounts is not considered a taxable distribution. So now advisors can do the same thing with subtracting their advisory fees from annuities as long as it doesn't exceed 1.5% of the value of the account. So a little bit of news there. Something that hasn't been able to be done before is now okay. And I think one, one I mean, 1.5% is in today's world pretty high. It's generous. <laughs> yeah. Annuities it just seems it, like it's making, they made it easier for these advisors to get their fees out of, out of annuities. I guess it wouldn't be harming the clients, but it does make it more justifiable, I guess, to take them directly from the annuity for the, for the advisor. Yeah. I sometimes feel like I'm launching a holy war or a crusade when I say that annuities are not actually investments, they're insurance products. And if you use it as an investment vehicle, it's probably one of the single most expensive ways to invest. The purported like one and a half percent we're talking about would be on top of, you know, the insurance costs, like the mortality and expense uh, ratio that's just baked into most of these policies anyway. So yeah, yeah, yeah agree. Not a, not a good growth, not a good growth vehicle. Uh, and should be way down the list in terms of things you're looking to put money into with a lot of stops to make before getting to considering that. Did you guys see that GameStop is back up to $129 and that it's up uh, 187% in uh, like the last 24 hours? What do you think is causing round two of the surge in GameStop? Because I feel like, is it the same thing that happened in round one? Well, we had a conversation off mic where I said, you know, there were probably some very, sh- some very sharp people in the last couple of weeks who saw GameStop at $300 and $400 a share. If they had stock available to borrow, that would honestly be the textbook short right there. So I, I want to believe that seeing GameStop move as much as it did yesterday. I don't know what it's doing this morning, but that would appear to be short covering for me if you sell it at 300 or 400 and look to cover it back at 60 or 70 or even $80. That's a, a really good round trip. Uh, that really could be the only thing that would explain it. It's the fundamentals, the story hasn't changed with GameStop. Yeah, if I've learned one thing from all of this, it's that it's uh, probably better to be in a position where all of this is just amusing right. uh, because you don't need to participate in any of this to have a sensible investment plan because I just think people are people are going nuts. So you either got people on one end looking for lottery tickets for the stock to go gangbusters up or people who I think are just like you don't need to short stocks to make money investing. And I just I feel like people who, who do that it's, first off, it's really hard, and, and you don't hear about many people who are famous, very rich, wealthy short sellers. I don't know, I don't know why people feel that they, that's, that's the way they have to participate in order to make money in the market, because it's, that's the furthest thing from the truth. You, you're making it way too hard. It's a lot of work. There was a funny tweet uh, from Conan O'Brien, I think it was two days ago, like making a joke like, all right, I'm finally getting in on GameStop. Uh, so he said... I, <laughs> He was like, I finally decided to buy GameStop. Wish me luck. And then people circled back to it yesterday when it was up 186%. And they were like, 
oh my gosh, like, did you actually buy it? Because if he did, like... Is Conan <laughs> O'Brien the new Warren Buffett? Right, yeah. <laughs> what does he know? But he was just making a joke about it. But, I mean, hopefully for him, he actually did buy it because that would be quite the luck. You know, when you talk to the old fogies in the, in the business, uh, they're pretty quick to remind people that Joseph Kennedy the father of JFK and RFK and, and uh, the whole Kennedy clan, made a lot of money shorting stocks in 1929 in, during the crash. Um, but he was actually, a uh, uh, most of the time, a long holder of stocks. So he was an investor who found a good opportunity to, to go short against the market. But you're right, Tim, in, in the sense that you know, and, and Brendan also, in that going short as a business model is really, really hard to do. Markets go up most of the time. Yeah. You're going to lose money most of the time. Yeah. You prepared for that or do you have perfect timing? Those are my questions to you. And if, if you don't feel confident about either of those things, then don't bother. Yeah. I think that's a good place to stop for this episode. Thanks for listening to episode 345 of the Maluli Asset Podcast. And we'll see you next week.